I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get started on talk number two on communication. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and we ask that you would speak to us, remind us again that we are relational beings who image you. And we do that even very clearly by the words we use to all people made in your image, but especially to the spouse you've given us. Lord, help us now think about how you would have us relate to one another using words that build up and bless. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, Good and Angry, author David Powlison talks about a marriage counseling situation that had never left his memory. He writes, I once counseled a couple who had a gunfight in their suburban house. Willie was upstairs with the pistol. Brenda downstairs with the rifle. They'd had words, the usual daily bickering. It had gotten more heated than usual. Finally, ugly words escalated into a domestic World War III. A half dozen rounds of live fire zinged up and down the stairway. Their marital dispute blasted bullet holes in the sheetrock scared the daylights out of the neighbors, and brought police sirens wailing to their door. Talking with me, that's David Pallison, was part of their court-mandated alternative to felony charges. For some reason, I've never forgotten that story. A gunfight in a suburban home between a husband and a wife. How on earth did it all begin? Well, at some point, you could assume it began when there was a breakdown in their communication. Interestingly enough, they were communicating. But instead of using self-control and reason, they were using ugly words and guns. Somewhere along the way, an annoyance probably led to ongoing irritation, which gave the periodic outburst of anger, and eventually it exploded in an all-out fight, literally, for one's life. You know, whether we are conscious of it or not, as human beings made in God's image, we are always communicating in one way or the other. We read earlier in the first talk about what makes human beings uniquely distinct from all creation. In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. An essential component to being created in God's image is reflecting or showing off something of what God is like in the world, ruling the earth, as we just looked at, filling the earth through childbearing, are fundamental and primary ways we can do that. However, we also image God through our communication, through our words. In Genesis 1, we read about the creation account and how the universe was formed. How did God create everything? Well, in the scriptures, it tells us he spoke it into existence. For instance, let me give you a biblical theology of God speaking. Genesis 1, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. We know from Romans chapter 1 that God's creation uh, tells us a little bit about his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature uh, by the things that we can see in the world, Romans 1, 19 and 20. 
However, because of our sin, our hearts are corrupted with deceitful desires. Our eyes are blinded from seeing the hope and the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Therefore, our knowledge of God is now distorted, and we are all condemned, everyone, men or women, left to our own rebellion in unbelief. That is, unless God takes the initiative to draw near to us and speak powerful words of grace and life. I mean, think about your own conversion as a Christian. Can you pinpoint the time where you became a Christian? Maybe you're listening to a sermon, Bible study, uh, maybe praying with a mom or a dad. Or maybe you don't remember, but you do uh, can recall all the different people God has put in your life to speak into your life and to encourage you and to challenge you. You know, at some point along the way, whether you were converted at 7 or 37, at some point you heard the word of truth. You heard God's word and God gave you life. That's why we read in Romans 10 verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, God speaks to us to save us. That's why preaching must be preeminent in the life of a church. But God also speaks to us in order to warn us, to correct us, to encourage us, to teach us, to lead us, to sanctify us, to assure us that we're forgiven, to make promises to us, to give us hope. Ultimately, he speaks to us so that we might know him. Friends, that's why it's an act of judgment if God ever stopped speaking to us. Instead of protecting us from us, judgment would be God giving us over to our own deceitful hearts, no longer speaking to us. Instead, he turns his back on us, leave us wandering aimlessly down a path of destruction to loosen all restraints upon us and leave us to a debased mind and a deceived heart. This, friends, would be an act of judgment on a nation, on a church, on a person, if God's word ever went mute towards us. You see, throughout Scripture, God executes his judgment upon sin in a variety of ways. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. God flooded the earth and saved a family of eight. God drowned thousands of Egyptians in the Red Sea. God caused King Herod to be struck down by an angel of the Lord and was eaten by worms. That's a bad way to go out. But beloved, God's silence without any promise of speaking again is a sign of God's judgment. I don't know when it was the last time you did a Bible study through the book of Amos. But listen to these words of warning and judgment that God pronounced on his wayward people. Amos 8, verses 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Beloved, that is a scary act of judgment. The point I'm wanting to get across to you and I this morning is that the words we speak and the words we don't speak as image bearers of God are revealing. They're testifying something about yourself And they're testifying something about what you think of your spouse. Communication can be loud and painful, even when you're using no words towards someone sitting right next to you. Showing a cold shoulder in the car towards your husband is saying something. 
showing dead radio silence towards your wife in your living room is saying something. You see, silence could indicate patience. We know the book of Proverbs says a a man of understanding will remain silent. He restrains his lips. But silence in a marriage could also mean a hardened heart. You see, when we do speak and we do decide to use words, we're breaking the silence. The words we use reveal what's going on in our hearts. These words, therefore, will inform your spouse on what's going on in your heart. And these words, if you choose them wisely and in timely ways, can even transform your marriage. There are words we can use that comfort our spouse in times of sadness. There are words we use to reprove or correct our spouse in times of discipline or correction. Whether you realize it on a daily basis or not, words have an ability to impact your spouse positively, but our words can implode your spouse negatively. Have you ever heard the childhood cliche, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Who's ever heard that before? Yeah, that's not biblical. That's junk. Where on earth did that ridiculous nursery rhyme come from? The pit of hell. Where on earth did we think that words could not hurt someone? (laughs) Listen to what the Bible says about the power of our words. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. James 3, verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Did y'all hear those three passages? Death and life. Sword thrust and healing. A member of our body set on fire by hell. Contrary to nursery rhymes, that we had good meanings using as kids, the scriptures are very clear that there is power behind the words we use. Think for a moment about the most painful memories of your own life, maybe from a parent or a coach. I can guarantee along the way, if we were to dig down deeper into those painful memories, there were probably some harsh and rash words said to you that left a scar Upon you today. Or on the other hand, think about the most enjoyable and sweetest memories of your life. Maybe from a teacher or a friend. Somewhere in those good memories, I can almost guarantee you that someone spoke words of grace into your life. They put wind in your sails. They made you feel understood. They made you feel cared for and loved and important. Well, even in the creation account, we see a glimpse of how our words can either build up and bless others, or they can tear down and self-righteously blame others. It's in Genesis chapter 2 where we see the only record of Adam speaking, as Brother Jeff gave us that Arkansas translation. What do we find the man doing? Whoa, man, (laughs) whoa, man. He's rejoicing over the wife God gave him. He's not resentful. He's not complaining. He's not wondering if God's got a backup plan for him. We read in Genesis 2, verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Adam recognized three things on his wedding day. God had provided a wife uniquely, specifically custom fit for him. Eve was uniquely made like him. She wasn't an animal. She was very different than all the other animals that he had to name. And Eve was different than him. She was a female. She was made from him, but she didn't look exactly like him. 
And yet, Adam looked at their sameness and their difference, and he was pleased with what God gave him. Here we see for the first time where truly a man loves a woman, echoing the words of Percy Sledge. Hashtag everybody from prom back in the day. No complaints. We had not even gotten to session three. I'm getting a little wild up. Session three, no complaints, no grumbling, no arguing, only joy. And how proud he was of the wife God gave him. Thanksgiving to God and adoration for his wife. But is that the end of the story? Well, if it was, we probably wouldn't be having this marriage refresh. When we look over to Genesis 3, look over to Genesis 3 real quick. Go ahead and open this up. I want you to see this. We looked at this a little bit already, but I want you to see how the words and the listening, the communication that's going on, uh, how much sin messes up our communication. Okay, so we just see this wonderful honeymoon-like excitement of Adam over his wife. He is proud. He is shouting to the rooftops. He is celebrating his bride. Sin enters the world. I want you to notice a few things. In Genesis 3.1, Eve listens to the serpent's lie about God's word. Did God really say? Okay, there's communication going on. Adam, in Genesis 3.6, doesn't speak up when he should. He's silent. He's quiet. He's passive. He's nowhere to be found. He doesn't speak up to lead or protect his wife from the serpent's tempting words. Genesis 3.7, both Adam and Eve then hide from God, or they try to, and cover up their nakedness. Genesis 3, verse 9, then God takes the initiative to call out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Genesis 3.10, Adam speaks words of fear and shame back to God. Look at Genesis 3.10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it does. Listen to Genesis 3, verses 11 to 13. He said, who told you, who spoke to you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? All right, there's God speaking, not to eat. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Here we witness the first marriage counseling session 101, blame shifting. The man blames both God and the woman for his own decision to eat the fruit. The woman then blames the serpent, because she's spiritual, for deceiving her in eating the fruit. But neither of them take ownership for their own actions as something they should be held accountable for. Brothers and sisters, much of our breakdown in communication and marriage is the result of one of three things, and sometimes all of them. We're not listening to God's word. We're not speaking words of truth and love to one another. Or we're not taking responsibility for our own sin. Could be all three. Usually it is. It's one of those not listening to God's word, not speaking words of truth and love, not taking responsibility for one's own sin. Now, I'm not going to use much time in here to talk about how do you deal with sin in your marriage. That is certainly an important aspect. If you want to jot down Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, this is not original with me, it's original with Jesus, and then a counselor in North Carolina that really kind of gives a helpful rubric when you're dealing with sin. In Matthew 7, 1 to 6, he kind of breaks it down as verses 1 to 2 is to check your spirit at the door if you are always complaining about petty things. So in other words, Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
So in other words, if you're a hypercritical person, you're self-righteously always trying to nitpick, be very careful. If, that's, if you're using that judgment on your spouse, then that same measure of judgment will be used back against you. So be careful of a critical, self-righteous, nitpicking spirit when you're thinking about working through sin. In verses 3 to 5, Jesus tells us that, okay, well, if sin must be dealt with, it's not petty, but it's serious, we need to first deal with our own sin before we can deal with the sin of someone else. Look at verses 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, or you could say your spouse, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, that's a really good principle that, number one, check your spirit at the door if you have a hypercritical, self-righteous, looking for anything to complain about spirit, because if you use that judgment against your spouse, that same measure of judgment could be used back to you. Verses 3 to 5, so how are we going to deal with real sin in marriage? Because it's going to happen. First, check your heart at the door. What sins, attitude, or action that you need to go before the Lord with before, that you need to deal with before you deal with your spouse's sin? Because it's very hypocritical of a husband or a wife to be calling out sin in someone's life if there's blatant, unrepentant sin in their own heart. Verse 6, though, does talk about a, very, a whole different degree of disagreement, and this is where you need probably help. Verse 6, Jesus says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw out your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And Jesus basically says, Don't waste your time speaking spiritual truths to someone who does not possess the Holy Spirit. In other words, there may come a point in your marriage where the person's heart is so hard, it doesn't matter what you're saying, they're not listening. And you might need some others to come alongside you in Matthew 18 to work through some difficulties because Jesus says, if they're not listening to the truth, if they're not listening with a willingness to receive and repent of, don't exhaust your energy. So there's varying degrees. There's nitpicking, there's real sin, but you got to deal with yours first. And then there is don't waste your time on it. Again, it's a helpful rubric. There's more to be said, but that's something you can think about when you're dealing with sin in your marriage. Eventually, though, if married couples are in denial of their sin or they're constantly attacking one another and blaming one another, then a married couple will hop on what we call the crazy cycle. Blame shifting goes to emotional manipulation passive-aggressive comments, cold-shouldering, stonewalling, and conflict avoidance. And it starts it all over again. Blame-shifting, emotional manipulation, aggressive comments, cold-shouldering, stonewalling, conflict avoidance. And if it isn't stopped, if that crazy cycle isn't put to a halt, before you know it, a married couple will look much like two strangers living under the same roof. Two ships in the night, just kind of passing by. They pay the bills together, but they no longer pay attention to one another. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You find yourself physically sitting next to your spouse, but emotionally you feel a thousand miles away. Not only are you on the crazy cycle, you've just decided to get totally off and stop trying. You've quit. You want to throw in the towel. The cycle's just too crazy. It just worn you out. But if you're here this morning and that's where you're at, I'm thankful you're here because you could have chosen not to be here. And this is why the gospel and the word of God can apply to any marriage situation. There's always hope for even the most broken and dysfunctional marriage. So, where can we begin to pump clean water into the aquarium that we maybe have polluted in our marriage? Well, it first has to begin with recognizing our speech, our words, are simply revealing what's going on in our hearts. What's going on right here? 
In order to get to the core of your marriage struggles, the core of my marriage struggles, you have to get to the heart of your husband and the heart of your wife. You got to get past surface level, past symptomatic stuff. We got to get underneath it. Didn't Jesus tell us in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So if our hearts and our words are directly connected, according to Jesus, we first need to not evaluate our spouse. We need to evaluate our hearts before God. Ask yourself the question this morning. This might be the most individualistic question I ask you. Where is your heart this morning before God? Not your pastor, not fellow church members, not your spouse, your heart. Because I can give you 150 things to do to improve your marriage, but if your heart's not right with God, it's just going to bounce right off. So it's got to start right here. Do I view my spouse as an enemy I'm fighting against? Or do I view my spouse fundamentally as someone created equally in the image of God? Someone to treat with dignity and respect. Listen, I'm going to talk a little bit about this in rules and fighting and in a good fight between a husband and wife, not guns blazing, <laughs> Brenda and Willie, don't do that. But even when you have a sharp disagreement with your spouse, you should still speak with respect and dignity because they're made in the image of God. There are people in this community and around this world that speak towards other people and about other people made in God's image as if they're like the mud on the bottom of their shoe. And beloved, we should never speak to another human being in a degrading and demeaning way, even if you disagree with them. So to that end, I'm going to lay out for you two categories to consider on this topic of communication in marriage. And then I'm going to offer what I call a grab bag of encouragements. I just kind of throw candy out to you, some things to consider. Now, these aren't exhaustive. I'm sure you could add more to this. There's more that you can probably apply, and I could add to this talk that'd be helpful, but I'm going to give you a few kind of first steps. First, I want to mention ingredients for healthy communication. And second, rules for engagement in conflict. First, ingredients for a healthy communication. Number one, a heart posture of humility before God. Open your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. <clears throat> James chapter 3. Start with me in verse 13, and we're going to read all the way to James 4 verse 10. And I want you to see the basic relationship that James is going to make, that I think he's just echoing Jesus here, between our hearts and our words, and how our horizontal relationships with each other are often reflective of what's going on vertically in our relationship with God. James 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here, James, like I said, recognizes the same thing that Jesus taught about the nature of our hearts. James speaks about how our hearts can be full of jealousy and selfish ambition. In other words, we want to be king of our marriage and sit on the throne as king of our own life. And we will run over anyone that gets in the way, sometimes including our spouse. James actually says this all begins when there's a war going on inside. I remember several years ago, Julie and I were about to go into a shopping center, and we were bickering about something in the car. And I remember just getting out going, why am I just so overwhelmed and irritated by this conversation? Because it's so trite and small, I don't even remember. And I would say 95% of me and Julie's marriage conflicts today are trite, um, small, and we don't even remember the next day. But why do the smallest, most insignificant things irritate us, annoy us, and want to, like, really take us out, even in the car? Well, it's because there's a war going on, and we want to win. We want to be heard. We want to win. We want to get our way. There's a war, and we want to fight, sometimes even our own spouse, to do so. You know, when you can first recognize the pride and selfishness within your own heart, you can begin confessing that to God and then to your spouse. You know, it's a good practice, brothers and sisters, to even begin today telling your spouse something like this, honey, I was selfish this afternoon. I mean, come on now, let's get specific and biblical. Don't say, well, I'm not perfect. No, I will have a whole hobby horse on that kind of stuff. Honey, I was selfish. Let's put some sin words in it. I didn't consider your thoughts on the decision I've made. I should have asked you what, I, what you thought before I did what I did. Will you forgive me for not loving you and considering you as I should have? And what do you see there? I'm calling my sin like it is. Jesus gives real words and real vocabulary to our sin, and we should too. We should call it like it is. You should tell your spouse, I'm selfish. I know there's a war going on. I really want my way. And I'm telling you right now, I can see it. And I want you to pray for me. Because I need you to fight with me against my sin. But then there's also not just confession. There's also a demonstration of repentance. I'm acknowledging what I should have done. I'm asking for forgiveness. And I'm saying, I really do want to love you or whatever the issue may be. You see, humility is the heartbeat behind any healthy and good marriage. Regardless if you've been married 50 years, like Ann and Roy, or six months, like Will and Caroline, a healthy marriage, whether it's at the beginning or in the last chapter, will always be characterized at some place by humility, a selflessness a consideration of the other person, even above yourself. So a humble wife will find her heart leaning towards her husband saying, I need your leadership, honey, or sweet and low, or whatever y'all call each other. <laughs> honey, honey bee, 
I want to follow you. Okay, why is she supposed to say that? Because that's how God made her as a helpmate. I want to follow you. I want, I need your leadership. A humble husband will find his heart drawn to his wife. I need your help. I want to lead you, but your input and contributions are crucial for me to lead this family well. You see, both of them are not abdicating their roles. Both of them are affirming each other's roles and asking for help. That's humility. Listen, if you've been married for at least 10 years, how many of us have looked back at our wedding pictures and thought, who is that person? And where did they go? By the way, never say that about your spouse. You say that about you. Don't say that about your spouse. You see, the scriptures testify to us what we already know from life experience. Youthful beauty will fade. Wedding pictures don't lie. It's just not going to last. But the fruit of Christ-like humility and selflessness will look more and more attractive as the years go on. Humble yourself, brothers and sisters, before God and one another daily. This is true beauty that will actually last even to your final hours together on earth. A heart posture that honors the Lord. The second ingredient for healthy communication is a willingness to listen to your spouse. A willingness to listen to your spouse. And all the men shook their heads. Proverbs 18.13, if I've got any daggers in my back pocket that I pull out all the time for my own heart or with my children or in marital counseling, it's Proverbs 18.13. If one gives an answer before he hears, everybody laughs, it is his folly and shame. Would you consider yourself to be a good listener? Let me ask you this way. Would your spouse consider you to be a good listener? Yeah, that's what I thought. Listening is not something we're naturally prone to doing well, is it? It's a little unnerving, isn't it? When you're just quiet. You're not trying to say the next thing or finish the sentence or volley back a comment. Listening requires humility and listening requires a discipline. I think it takes a lot of work to be an active listener. If you have children or you've had children, you know that in the course of a day, one of the biggest challenges is teaching them how to listen Listen carefully and obey immediately. How many times have you said that? But if they don't learn how to do this in your household, in my household, their adult life will generally keep that same pattern, won't it? Only instead of not listening carefully, we just get more creative in how we pretend to listen, don't we? We can find ourselves crafting an answer in our heads rather than listening to what our spouse is telling us. We can even be quiet, but we totally zone out on the conversation. We're thinking about the ball game or what we need from the grocery store or how you forgot to put on deodorant. Some of us think if we talk loud enough, then our spouse will hear us. Not realizing that before long, our marriage can slowly become a one-sided conversation. But what we often don't understand is that the discipline of listening is really prioritizing what you value. If you think something is important, you give attention to it. You move things around in your schedule. Even cancel events, if necessary, to focus on it. I mean, think about it. It could be listening to what your boss says at work, because if you don't, you might lose your job. It could be taking that phone call from a friend and go somewhere quiet so you can hear everything they want to share with you. 
or here we are getting close to March. I don't know what COVID's going to do, but March Madness is upon us. If you've got a favorite NCAA team, you'll probably find the time to fill out a tournament bracket, watch the game, and you'll probably turn off your phone and turn off the world to watch it. You'll go down into your she shed or man cave just so you can watch it without distraction. But brothers and sisters, would your spouse say that you value their opinions and thoughts in that way? Do you make time for them to listen to what's going on in their hearts? Intentionally carving out time just to listen. See, a husband or wife who values their spouse will take time to give attention to what they have to say. Now, here are a few words of encouragement. We're all made a little different, right? So raise your hand if you're an internal processor in here. Okay, this is what that means. I'm one of them. <laughs> internal processors seek understanding and resolve in what they think or feel when they're by themselves. They just need time to just kind of be alone, think about it, replay it in their head, come up with what they're going to say, emotionally kind of bring themselves to a place that's of an equilibrium there. If you're married to an internal processor, maybe ask them if they'd like to talk about an issue. And if they say yes, then give them space. But if they need time to think about it and come back, then don't rush the conversation. Just chill out. Let them think about it. Take a chill pill. They will get back to a resolve at some point. If you're married to an external processor, that is, you seek understanding and resolve by actually talking out loud about it. Okay? If you're married to an external processor, you need to ask them if they'd like to talk about a particular issue. If they say yes... Get ready for the word vomit. It's coming. They're going to barf all these words and emotions and take you on the roller coaster of their mind. Right then and there. The first 15 or 20 minutes might seem incoherent and confusing to you, but the way you can help them is let them talk it out loud to articulate what's on their mind. Be ready to ask questions clarifying questions, and reciprocate with facial expressions that you are tracking with them. Do not fall asleep. There are some comical videos I can send you all later about, wow, thank you for listening to me. She looks over, her husband's gone. You got to know who you're married to. We're not all the same. Some of us need time to think about it, and some of us need to barf. You got to know how to love how God has made your spouse. Number three, a third ingredient for healthy communication in marriage is a practice of affirmation and encouragement. An affirmation, affirmation and encouragement. Uh, to be honest with you, I think many marriages today experience ongoing tension because they lack encouragement in their marriages. For whatever reason, whether it's the way people were raised or they're just so self-focused on how they're feeling or how they're doing, men and women can often find themselves enjoying receiving the gift of encouragement, but they don't know how to give that gift of encouragement. Do you know what giving encouragement looks like? Well, it's recognizing God's work of grace in someone's life and commending the person for the godly fruit that you see in them. You know, when you go shopping or house hunting or car hunting, or if you, you know, look at any kind of beautiful painting in a museum, you know, you're going to stare at it for a while and notice details about the painting or the house or the car, and the longer you stare at it, you're eventually going to start highlighting the things you like. Man, I love, I love the way you know, the pillars are built, or I love the color of the door, et cetera, and so forth. You're, you're looking at everything you can find that's attractive to you. Well, that's, that's what encouragement is. You're paying attention to the God's work, the fruit of the Spirit, the things you see that commends God's character in someone's life. You know, Ephesians 4.29 can be universally applied to all Christians. 
It's a great text to put right over your kind of bathroom window or wherever you're tempted to argue with your spouse the most. Ephesians 4 verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, brothers and sisters, encouragement and affirmation exist really to help us love God more and to love one another better. That's essentially why the Bible commands us to not neglect gathering together as Christians. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're going to talk a lot about that tomorrow on our sermon on encouragement for endurance. And that certainly would include our spouses. Not flattery, not lying, not saying what isn't true, not vomiting a bunch of things just to appease your spouse, but noticing the good you see in their life and praising God for it. I mean, isn't that what Adam did over his wife Eve in the garden as Jeff highlighted for us? He rejoiced over her. Husbands, let's heed these words from author and pastor Ray Ortland. In his book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, he comments on Ephesians 5 by stating this, Deep in the heart of every wife is the self-doubt that wonders, do I please him? Am I the one he dreamed of and longed for? Will he love me to the end? Am I safe with this man I married? Will he cast me off? Even if we go the distance, will he get tired of me? A wise husband will understand that that uncertainty, that question is way down deep in his wife's heart. And he will spend his life speaking into it, gently and tenderly communicating to her in many other ways. Darling, you are the one I want. I cherish you. I rejoice over you as no other. The thought of living life without you is horrible to me. I love the thought of growing old together with you, hand in hand, all the way. I will hold you close to my heart until my dying day. A wise husband prizes and praises his wife above all others. That is why the word love is in verse 33. Love breathes life into a woman. Brothers, take time. I should take time to highlight the things we appreciate about our wife's character, her work ethics, her parenting, her physical appearance, and her sheer presence in your life. Think of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if you tend to forget, as sometimes we're all prone to do, uh, write it down on a note card or do what I do. I get on my notes app and I go, I really want to encourage Julie, but I know I'm going to forget to say this. So I'll think of something earlier in the day and remind myself later in the evening of things I want to encourage her about. You see, a little thoughtfulness, a little attention can go a long way. You might even find it useful to adopt phrases like this in your marriage. I'm glad I married you. You look gorgeous today. What can I do to help? Now be careful. Don't get your pride hurt. She might say, nothing, that's helpful. But asking doesn't hurt. Sisters, as a wife, you too have a responsibility to affirm and encourage your husband. A man might have the worst day at work. People oppose him on every side. But if he knows his wife is standing side by side with him, believing in him, that man will feel like he can take on an army. Now, he might be like four foot eight and can't take on an ant, but he'll feel like he can take on an army. If a husband knows his wife is with him, 
He says, bring it on. I know I've experienced that in the last year of my life. I don't know if I would have made it if I didn't have Julie by my side. Thank you for you, sweetheart. I'm totally aware that every husband may respond differently to a wife's attempts to encourage him. Each man will have various emotional dispositions. He's still kind of got that cavalier kind of cowboy mentality. I don't weep for anyone except my football team. Well, you got to know who you're married to, okay? Don't try to make him like you. He's not you. He's a man. You're a woman. Remember Genesis 1 and 2? Appreciate the distinction. So learn what makes him feel respected and valued and lean into it. Be bold. Just ask him, even if it's sort of awkward. Ask him what makes you feel appreciated. What makes you feel respected? Think about those things like his leadership in the home, the work he provides you for, decision-making, or even his physical appearance. You might even find it useful to adopt phrases like this, I appreciate all the things you've done for me all these years. I trust you. I'm so proud to be married to you. I mean, just listen to these extreme ways how a wife can build up her husband or tear him down. Proverbs 21, verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Proverbs 12, verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 12. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of his life. You see, a godly wife will use words that contribute to the respect he might even receive from his own peers. But an ungodly wife will nag him to death, persistently pointing out all his flaws, becoming unrelenting, in heaping demands upon him. Be an expert at fault-finding in him. Uh, Sisters, never compare your husband to another man and never bring that up to his attention. You will gut him. And husbands, never compare your wife with another woman. You will gut her. That's not helpful. Even if you admire godliness in another man or another woman, don't size your spouse up to them. You're married to that man or that woman, and you are to be devoted to encouraging them and admiring them, not making them feel inferior to what they're not. Again, listen to Ray Ortland's advice, ladies, but now to wives. He says, no man gets married in order to live under the leaky roof, so to speak, of a nagging, scolding wife. Life at home should never be made into a dripping water torture. A man's home, the place of refuge, must not yet be more of the storm he must cope with every day at work. But a wise Christian wife with a gentle and quiet spirit refreshes her husband's spirit to face the challenge of life again the next day with new determination and confidence. What are the ingredients of healthy communication in marriage? A heart of humility before God, a willingness to listen to your spouse, and a practice of affirmation and encouragement. But Brother Blake, what about conflict? I mean, is it all sunshine and rainbows? Well, let's get in the ring. Let's think about rules for engagement in conflict, because guess what? Sparks fly when you start trying to apply biblical truth. So in athletics, there are certain rules that athletes have to abide by. Uh, In churches like CCBC, we have certain rules of engagement, even in our members' meetings, that regulate how people can speak or vote, etc. 
Well, in marriage, I hope you don't operate Robert's Rules of Order in your marriage. It would be really odd if Gunnar did that as uh, bringing his home practice to Robin saying, do you want to bring a motion? Will, do you accept? You know, that just gets really odd and strange. Now, if that's how you love each other and that's how y'all operate, Robert's Rules of Order to you, go with it. But uh, most likely that's not going to be very helpful long term. But you need to have some rules. There needs to be some kind of mutual agreement of how you're going to work through disagreements and conflict. Here are some that Julie and I didn't like come up with. I think we just learned through all the mistakes we've made and said, well, I'll just start using what we've learned. So here's just some. Number one, in conflict, seek closure. Seek closure. Have a mutual desire to reach a decision or resolution. There should be an appointed time at some point to tie up loose ends on the conversation. Generally, most of the time, husbands should lead in this. Husbands, you have the mantle of leadership. I have the mantle of leadership. Avoiding a difficult conversation is a cowardly thing to do. Now, discernment might say, maybe not right now. But cowardly avoiding it altogether, that is not the type of leadership that honors the Lord. So give time and space, internal, external. Let someone think about it for a while, whatever the disagreement might be. Be patient with how they're processing it. But on the other hand, you can't kick the ball so far down the road that you never actually come to a resolution. Some things need to be dealt with. And some things need to be dealt with before the day ends. Ephesians 4 tells us, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, as a newlywed, I did not apply this text accurately. Every disagreement, look at Julie smirking. Every disagreement we had, I said, honey, do not let the sun go down on your anger. We're not going to bed. We're going to hash this out. And I found that that just never really worked out that well. She was exhausted I said things I regretted, and then it dawned on me. There was one day, Julie said, we don't have to hash it all out right now. I went away. I'm trying to obey Jesus. Find out the next day, she's rested. She doesn't even remember the conflict. Okay, I should have just kept my mouth quiet. And I've seen the vice versa. We've thought about, hey, listen, that doesn't mean that you're going to resolve everything before the day's over. Some of us just need to take a nap, sleep on it, so that we're brought back to a sensible place. The the basic point here is if a decision can't be resolved in a 24-hour period, you need to come up with a resolve at some point it needs to be dealt with. You can't just let something be open-ended. That's where the devil can creep in. Leave that door cracked and bitterness can set in. Number two, avoid hyperbolic language. Avoid hyperbolic language. Words like never and always can be really hard to hear when your spouse is upset. You never take out the trash. You always complain about my mother. Listen, you're not God. You don't have 100% infallibility on the nevers and always. So it's better to tone your language down. Say things like, sometimes, lately, I've noticed a pattern recently. Be a little more general, or you'll end up like Willie and Brenda. Don't do that. Kind of lower the temperature by being more accurate. Number three, exercise discernment on the nature of the disagreement. Is this a sin issue, or is this a preference or opinion issue? You know, a sin issue is I can point to the Word of God. This is a clear aberration and rebellion to God's word, whatever it may be, chapter and verse, or implied there. But there's many things in life, guys, that are not a matter of sin or righteousness. You know, if you want to have a king-sized bed and your spouse wants a queen, there's nothing about sin in that. If you want a red car and she wants a black car, there's no sin in that. Now, is it a sin that a husband forgets their anniversary? Well, if you promised to her that you would take her out and make her feel special on that anniversary and you forgot, you need to own up to it. 
Be a man of your word. Ask for forgiveness. But again, is it a sin over these other things that you just might approach a situation differently? There's a zillion things I could bring up on that. Just make sure when you're having the disagreement, is this a sin issue or is this just a difference of opinion? Again, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Number four, oh, sorry, assume the best motives. Assume the best motives. One of the most difficult realities in marital conflict is you forget you're on the same team. (laughs) If you've ever seen teams implode on a football field, it's when they start fighting with each other. And the coaches fight with the players, and the players fight with the coaches. That's a recipe for disaster. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, it is certainly possible that your spouse could have been selfish towards you, but the basic posture of a Christian married to another Christian is assume the best motives. You may wholeheartedly disagree with their plan or the conclusion of an issue, but asking some open-ended questions can be an act of love. Can you walk with me in how you thought through this? I'd like to hear how you thought about this and came to that conclusion. Could you share with me what counsel you received or research you've made or any other factors that could just help me understand where you're coming from? It just shows love. That shows grace. You see, one goal in communication is being known. So it's important that you seek to understand where your spouse is coming from, even if you disagree with their conclusion. Number five, reaffirm your love. Reaffirm your love. Anytime a husband and wife disagrees about something and it leaves some feelings hurt, maybe there's some collateral damage on the floor, You should always reaffirm your love for your spouse. Even if at the end of the day you sharply disagree, tell them, I'm for you. I love you. We are on the same team. See, love doesn't always have to agree with another person. But for a Christian, love does mean do what you can to preserve unity. Pursue peace and speak the truth and love. And where sin has been committed, confess that sin. And if your spouse confesses that sin, extend forgiveness. What does Ephesians 4.32 tell us? As God in Christ has forgiven us, so too we should forgive one another. One brother once wily put it this way, a couple doesn't fall out of love as much as they've fallen out of forgiveness and repentance. Let me say that again. That's one of those mic drop ones. A couple doesn't fall out of love as much as they've fallen out of forgiveness and repentance. Now here's some grab bag candy as we conclude talk two. Start and end the day with an affirmation of praise and thanksgiving to one another. You could start off the day rough, but you can end it well. Choose your words wisely. Set aside time to have uninterrupted conversation at least once a day. Some of you work long hours. Some of you might not be allowed to even use your phone except on the lunch break. But a phone call, a text, maybe even a surprise stop at the house. It doesn't have to be extra long, just thoughtful and intentional diversify your conversation. So young parents, I'm now speaking to us here. Don't just talk about diapers, work, parents, and kids. Talk about things you also enjoy. What you're reading, goals for the future, what you want from Andy's later. What friends you want to hang out with? What vacations you'd like to have? Lighten the conversation by talking about things that you enjoy. Being in the same room isn't the same as truly being present. 
You've got to speak to one another in order to grow. Having no problems doesn't mean that there isn't a problem. How's your marriage going? Well, I think it's pretty good, brother. Talk to the wife. How's your marriage going? It's a train wreck. Just because you hadn't heard something don't mean there is something. You got to talk. Have other couples spend time with you. Ask for their feedback. Open up your life at least to one other married couple. Uh, Julie and I, a couple of years ago, leading up to about our ninth or tenth anniversary, I had realized, I said, you know, Julie and I have never been in marriage counseling since before we were married. And we've had, you know, bumps that we've gone through and some challenging times, but marriage was doing pretty well. But I thought, you know, I want someone else to peer into our marriage that I trust, that's gracious, that's going to tell me like it is and tell Julie like it is, but they genuinely care about our marriage. And so we actually went to one of my pastor friends back in D.C. and said, hey, we just want a marriage checkup. Just like, give us anything. We'll do homework. Give us questions. Uh, just ask us anything. There's nothing glaring in our marriage, at least we're aware of, but if you ask some questions to get us going, I think it would be beneficial for us to talk through. And it was very beneficial for us to just have someone else in the room, even when marriage was not overly difficult. And having another married couple in your life to just open up to can be super helpful. Um, if you're looking for a way to do that or have some kind of guide, I came up with a few years ago a marriage checkup. It's kind of like checking the oil for your marriage. So if you'd like that, just email me directly saying, Blake, I want that marriage checkup. It's, it's a five to six page document that each person, each the husband and wife will fill out together, uh, but you'll do it separate. You don't want looking at each other's answers like, that defeats the purpose. But after you filled it out, then you share your answers, and then you come and sit down with me or me and Julie, or you can do it with another couple. I have found that super useful for couples just to kind of talk through some various things.